the driver was in the car. Me and my two friends got out of the, of the, of the car, back of the car. We had our ovals on. We pulled our balaclava down. I had the semi-automatic pump action shotgun. My other two mates both had 38 revolvers. We hit the, uh, the post office, put the gun on the screen. There's an Indian guy behind the, behind the counter. I sent me, sent demands over to him and the money over. He screamed. He hit the panic button. So I let a shot off in the roof just to let him know that we weren't messing about and we come here for the money. So I let a shot off in the roof. I blew the roof out, but the alarm bells were ringing at this time and he was behind the screen and he vanished out a little back room and he'd gone. It disappeared. So we couldn't get through the door because all the screens was up. The alarms were going and we knew police was on the way because we heard the sirens going. Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. And today's guest is Joey Barnett, who has written a book called A South London Borstal Boy's Tales. It's available on Amazon, and I will put a link in the notes, and I'd like you to read it because it's really good. Joey couldn't read and write until well into his adult life, and he gave me a copy of his book, and he signed it. And I didn't read what it said until I was on my way home on the train. Now, one of the first things Joey said to me when we met was that he didn't want to glamorize crime. And you will realize very quickly from hearing him speak that he isn't doing that. He's not glamorizing crime at all. This is a very personal interview in which Joey talks about being sectioned at age 12, taking part in a dirty protest with Charlie Bronson, the stupid, and those are his words, not mine, stupid way in which he was caught and convicted for armed robbery. He got 12 years for that, how he feels about the tattoo on his face and why young people shouldn't get involved in crime. Joey has turned his life around and he helps other people and he wants to continue helping others. In his book that he gave me, he wrote in the front cover, you're a diamond geezer, Matt. Well, thank you. And straight back at you, Joey Barnett. It was great meeting you. And this is an excellent interview. How, how old were you then when before you could read and write? Forty-one, right? Wow. Okay. Forty-one. I obviously, went through the ju- uh, junior school, went to adult school, but I'd got kicked out of junior school. I got taken to a, um, a special unit for kids with learning difficulties. I fucking smashed all the roof up, terrorised everything in there. They kicked me out of there. Um, that's when I that's when I went to a detention centre, and then I went to uh, Thursday Secondary School, which was in my secondary school. I think I was in there for about a month, about a month. And like an idiot, when we was kids, you got a token for school, for your school dinner, tokens. Yeah. I see an opportunity in the office. I was walking walking like through the corridor one day, one day all on my own. I was only 13, 14, in, first, in the first year. Walking down the I see the office open. I see a fucking pile of, I see a pile of tokens like that. And you had to buy the tokens to get your dinner. And then underneath that, I see quite a lot of petty cash, probably about 80 quid. But when I was 13, it was a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. And um, I fucking nicked that, nicked that. And um, that afternoon, I said to what two of my mates, I said, come on, let's go out. We went to pictures, all around Streatham, the ABC, the Odeon. Fucking spent all the money, went down all the arcades. We got drunk. And then the next day, I went, 
No, it was that same night. Fucking police come round my house and the school rang the police and said that he, he, he's taken all his um, tokens. He'd been seen by another teacher walking out of the office, nicking the tokens. They expelled me out of their school within about three months of being in there. And then I got sent to another naughty school, but this was in the secondary, which meant there was like 15-year-olds onwards, 14, 15 onwards. So it was a different level because that's really where like, I got... That's where the crime started really bad then, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I met people in there from different areas and they're like, they, they was into different things and that's when I was I started integrating with other people in different manners and then I was going over there. I got kicked out of there when I was uh, 12. When I was on tw- when I was 12 years of age, before all that, I got put, put in a nut house in Long Grove, Epsom. My dad had me sectioned without my mum knowing. She was dying in hospital with cancer. How, you were sectioned when how 12 was? wow Longgrove Epsom what's it like to be sectioned at that age did, did you even know what it meant nah nah my dad was um, a long distance lorry driver and he was army that's my mum there my granddad. so he was army he was very very regimental and because I was I weren't the son what he wanted me to be I was a fucker and he wanted me to follow his footsteps basically and he was a long distance lorry driver when he came out of the army. So he was like driving to Istanbul, Turkey, Iraq, all around. And he was gone for months and months on end. But when he did used to come back, he was so strict. And well, I, by that time, I was 12, by that time I'd fucking lost the plot. Not lost the plot, but I didn't really care about him because all my mates and. Yeah. And um, my mum was in hospital with cancer on her breast. And she had Crohn's disease on thrombosis of the lungs. My dad was looking after me, but my, si- my two sisters were looking after me. And then uh, I didn't even fucking have a clue. One one morning, door got knocked. My sister answered the door. There was a van out there, two police and two doctors. They chucked me in the back of it. I didn't have a fucking clue, Matt. They chucked me in the back of the van. I said, where am I going? Where am I going? Don't worry. You'll see soon. And I drove me all the way to Epsom, Long- a, a, a psychiatric con- unit called Longgrove. They put me in here. I was fucking petrified. I was crying my eyes out. I've gone into a ward. The doctor's come along. He's put an injection in my ass. Bang, I was out for that night. I woke up the next morning, looked around me. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. All like geriatrics, elderly people, shuffling like that. Fucking, it traumatised me. In the afternoon, about one o'clock in the afternoon, in the dining hall, there's a set of double, double, double doors. And like, there was a big ground, a long and you had all like the patients all walking around the ground, all going like that, all shouting at themselves, screaming at themselves. I was, I was only a little kid, I was out, I was looking like that, thinking, what the fuck's going on here? There was a lady sitting opposite me, she had her legs wide open, she had all the fingers up her vagina, going like that, looking at me. Oh, for fucking hell, what's going on here? Jesus. Yeah, it really fucked me up. On this do- In a dormitory, I was about 20 of us. And then uh, after, they was coming around giving me injections every night. And then uh, after about, of a daytime, we was made to go opposite out of the hospital on, into a, a, a port cabin and they was doing classes. This is for kids, not adults. So they was running like a school, but in a unit. And we, we, it was like a course. We all had to do it. And I remember going in there, do you know what I mean? And it was, it was absolute fucking mayhem. You had an Indian guy, a Pakistani guy, and he thought he was possessed by the devil. Uh, he, was, he was absolutely fucking, it was insane. What I witnessed was just like crazy for my age. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I was only, I think I might be thirteen by this time. One night, all the lights went out in the dormitory. Everyone was like, "Anyway, I've gone to the toilet. I've seen a little window in the toilet. 
bang, I've got out the window and I escaped out of the hospital. I got to Epsom train station on the other ground. There was no trains running. I had, me, I had a dressing gown on and a pair of pyjamas, four o'clock in the morning, walking through Epsom town centre. And I was like 12, 13 years of age. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I, I, my head was everywhere. I got to the train station, realised there weren't no trains running. I got in. I got into this waiting room, like a table. And I hid underneath this table. I hid, I hid there till about five, six in the morning until I see the first train, jumped on a train, got back to Victoria, hiding in the toilets. I got home. Mum was out of hospital, and as luck had it, as luck had it, my dad had gone. He'd gone on another long distance lorry driver, lorry journey. Yeah. I was speaking. I was speaking to my mum on the phone, like while I was in the hospital, but not about like. While I was in there, nothing like that. Was, she was just trying to cheer me up. And then when I got home, I, like I said to her, I said, well, what was I, what was I in there for? She said, Joe, she said, I didn't have a clue. He had your section. She said, as you know, I was in hospital. She said, he didn't, he didn't ask none of us. She said, because he's your dad, he had your section. And that, that was the first time I got sectioned when I was 12. That's what, and I think that's probably why I ended up like I am now, to be honest with you, 12 years of age. I've just never heard anything like that. I'm 14, 15, 16, 17, 8-year-olds, all really fucked up people. I was 12 years of age. Really messed me up. And then, yeah, from there, I just, there was no turning back for me, if you know what I mean. Sure. No one actually said to me, right, come here, Joe, this is how it's meant to be done. All my mates was at it, thieving, robbing, doing bits, and but even, even at 12, 13 on my estate, they was all like at it, do you know what I mean? Yeah. To get to age 41, I'm not to be able to read and write, to me, to be able to go, I can't read or write, and now I want to learn, that is a very ballsy thing to do. Do you not think? It is, but it, it did petrify me and frighten me because I couldn't even spell my own name. I couldn't, I couldn't read nothing. Uh, so I had to start from the floor, from the bottom upwards. And um, I was put on education only on my last sentence on the recall in the 12 years. So I got three years on top for an assault, what happened. And it was... It was then, 41, 42, I finally realised that I need to learn to read and write because it was getting to a stage where I was getting embarrassed where I couldn't read and write okay. in front of people. It was saying what I, I thought I've got to do. Yeah. I've got to If there's nothing else in life I progress and do, one thing I've got to learn myself is how to read and write. And, and that's what I've done. I went on to an education course while, whilst I was in Wayland for literacy, adult literacy, and um, it took me probably about nine months to a year to write a sentence. But I persevered with it and progressed with it, and in the end, I ended up getting sitting guilds for adult learning, adult literacy, speaking, listening, which the exams, and got sitting gills when I showed you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. But yeah, it was frightening. I was really frightened at first because I thought by going on to this course in prison, that people would be looking at me as if I was a bit stupid or as if I was thick, like I couldn't read and write. And did any of them think that? No, no. There was quite a few other inmates in there what was in the same, what was on the same boat as me. They couldn't read and write. And the teacher, what I had at that time, was absolutely excellent. And she persevered with me. She obviously knew out of the whole classroom the guys what couldn't read and write, so she gave me a little bit more attention. I got a little bit more of attention from the teacher, and um, I got a little bit more homework to go back to my cell. 
and that's what I've done. I studied it in my cell um, whilst I was locked up with a night time. That's what I used to do. I used to study and read, and I learnt myself how to read and write up to the point where I couldn't even write my own name, and then right up to the end point where I've just ripped my own book. Yeah, which is fantastic. That, that's amazing. Cheers, mate. That is really brilliant. Cheers, but yeah, your answer it was really frightening at first. Yeah, yeah, of course, now it's going to be. And I did initially think that people would look at me and they'd look down at me, they'd laugh at me or take a piss out of me, but they didn't. Cool. You mentioned Charlie Bronson. I've got to ask you about him just simply because he's a character, isn't he? I'd call Charlie a character and half. Yeah, I know quite, yeah. I've been in many, many jars with Charlie Bronson um, right the way through my adult life of an inmate in going to different prisons. The first time I see him was in 1999. I was in Parkhurst on the 12-year sentence. I just received 12 years. I was down in the segregation unit for an incident which happened on the wing. Um, I got took down the segregation unit and down the segregation unit in Parkhurst, you've got the ones landing, the twos landing, and the threes and the fours. It's like a normal wing. It's that big where so many inmates are down in segregation. It's like a it's it's like a wing, a normal wing. But obviously, you're locked up beyond the door, beyond that cell door for twenty three hours a day. You've got no association. You can't cook your own food. You're just locked behind the cell door. But you could talk out the windows. Um, they had cages on the windows, so you couldn't really. But we used to get lines to each other. If one of us wanted a Rizzler or if one of us wanted a, a match or anything to do with smoking or a let or anything like that, what we used to do, we used to wait for the wind to come and we used to get a piece of toilet roll and when we used to let the piece of we used to let the wind take the toilet roll and blow it to next door and we used to put a little bog well, a big a bog brush out through the little cage of the window and wait for the the toilet roll to land on top of the bog brush and then we'd reel the bog brush in and pull the tissue in and that's how we'd pass each other like bits and pieces through the window. So we, so basically what I'm trying to say is because we was down in segregation unit, we could all talk to each other and occasionally we used to see each other. Like they used to let us out for exercise, also for a phone call or a shower. So when everyone, when your mates would, would be let out for this, we'd be at the cell door looking out the hatch, looking out the side of, of the door to have a have a eyes on view of view of you. Yeah. Because I've, a few times I've spoken to people like, and I've been right next door to them, and I've spoken to them, and they're speaking to me about like their crimes and armed robberies and how big they are in the game and what they've done in the game, and I've I've built a picture up of them just from behind my cell door without even looking at them. You build a picture up of someone like an MO of someone. So I built, I built a picture up and I was talking to a guy and he was an armed robber. He was doing 14 years for an armed robbery and he sounded like a really, really hardened, high up, massive criminal. He had a deep voice. You know, I thought he was like a really big man, massive. And I couldn't believe it. When I looked out my cell door, he was about five foot one and about eight stone going to the surgery. His name was Gary. It was just so funny because when he came back to his cell, I had a chat out the window to him and I said, Gary, I said, I thought he was about six foot five and about 20 stone. Yeah. It was really, really funny. So this is where I met um, Charlie Bronson. We used to talk out the windows of a night time. We used to all like, have a chat and have a laugh and tell each other stories out the windows. And on the first time 
which I met Charlie. He was two cells along from me, and he had he was on a probably a five or six man unlock. I was put on good order and discipline, which meant I was put down in segregation unit because I committed a, a crime on the um, on the wing towards an officer. So I was put on good good order and discipline, but I weren't do, deemed as violent in a bad way where I wouldn't go to the hot plate and get my own food. So certain inmates on good order and discipline could walk down, the screws would open your door and you could walk down to the ones, which is where the survey was, and you could walk down to the ones and get your food and then there'd be a screw waiting outside your door, you go back to your door and you eat your food in your cell. And Charlie Bonson was shouting out the window to, to all, the, all the lads down in the segregation unit, everyone has got to go on a shit up. There's probably about 50 inmates down there at this time and Charlie was like shouting out the windows to everyone, shit yourself up, shit yourself up. So what he meant, what he meant was that was 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 go a shit and spread it all around the walls and do a pro- dirty protest. Okay. So that's when that's when I met Charlie Bonston. I met him through a dirty protest. Did everyone do it as well? Out of fifty inmates, probably 10, 10 did, and I was one of them. What done it? Yeah. That's, so that's how I first met him, Charlie Bonston, on the dirty protest. Okay. Um, and as I say, he was on a five or six man unlock, and I thought it was pretty funny because every time, like they wanted to let him out for a shower, or they wanted to let him use the phone, or exercise, they had to come to we call it the Mufti Mufti Squad, the security. They had to come to himself five or six handed, all like in body armor, all shielded up, and that it was called a, a, a five or six man unlock. They had to take his food to his cell. If he was going on the yard, they'd like surround him, put all like shields around him and make sure that he got onto the yard without attacking one of them. It was that type of thing. And there was two separate cages in Parkhurst, um, exercise yards, like two metal cages, and two inmates could go in at a time in each cage. So basically there was four inmates at a time. And that's when I met Charlie. One afternoon I was out in the exercise yard. This was prior to the dirty protest, by the way. I was out in the exercise yard and he was walking around in, in the next cage and he just asked me about my crime, where I was from, bits and pieces, and we got friendly and got chatting with each other and I become good friends with him. And that is why when he asked everyone to go on a dirty protest, I'd done it because it was just out of, because I knew him and, you know, I didn't want to upset him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to upset him, but I'm just... I'm th- I suppose the question, this is a weird question, not a weird question, but the question that just springs to mind, so I'll just say, anyway, who cleans up the mess after a dirty protest? Right, yeah, the officers used the inmates, which come off normal location. So uh, inmates, uh, the, the cleaners on the, um, on the wings get paid, I think it's between eight to ten pounds. Now, the officers won't go in and clean the, uh, the shit themselves, they get two inmates off of the wing, put them in a boiler suit, put a pair of gloves on them, protective clothing, give them a scrubbing brush, a bucket of water and soap, and they're made to clean the dirty shit up, the inmates. Okay, now it's just an intro. I mean, you know, it's I- funny you should say that because a lot of the cleaners and a lot of inmates which did clean the shit up would get like slagged off, criticised and their name would be flying all around, all around the system in the prison. That they're 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 wrong ones. They're dogs. They're horrible bastards. They're working for the screws, because the idea of doing this shit up is for the screws to come in and smell it, and for the screw it, to to deter the screws from coming in your cell. 
But there again, on the on the flip side of that coin, and then you've got an inmate coming in, clearing your shit up. So it's defeating the object. The reason why you do this is for the, to affect the screws, not the inmates. So this was like a, a way for the screws to get back to the inmate what was on the dirty protest by using inmates yeah. to clean them up. So nobody really won then, you could say. No, nobody no. really won that, did they? No, no, no one, no one really won. But I mean, a lot of the times, I know Charlie Bronson himself, he, he did shit up, shit up on numerous occasions because um, they, was, they was going into his cell, squashing him up against the back wall with shields, bending him up, putting his arms up his back, like putting his legs up his back pulling them up like a funky chicken, they'd pick him up out of one cell and then like take him to another cell where he'd just shit up, take him to another cell and just throw him straight flat on the floor and all run out of the cell and back off. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Very very interesting. That is. I didn't I didn't expect that. Yeah, that's yeah. That's very interesting. And he, was, he was a very very funny man, Charlie Bunsen. Yeah, I've heard he had a good sense of humour. But then I guess you need a good sense of humour, don't you? If you're inside, maybe sometimes. Well, on the long sentence, you need something to get through it. Yeah. How to... do you get through it then? At first, I didn't. I couldn't accept it when I first got me twelve years. Um, I was like a loose wire, to be honest with you. Anything what happened on the wing, I was part of it. So, if any windows got broke, it was always I was I was part of it. If uh, an officer got violated or anything like that, I was part of it. I was completely alive. Why? If a paedophile come into the into the wing, I was the one to go and beat this paedophile up. So that is how I got through my first few years of my sentence by doing what I wanted to do and being a complete and utter maniac. And that's how, that is why I got shipped out of so many different jails because every jail I went into, the, the, the screws just couldn't handle me. They couldn't stop me. I wasn't violent, but they couldn't tame me at first when I first got my sentence. Sure, okay. When, when did you make the decision to stop? Many years later, at the age of 42. Okay. On my last uh, sentence, when I got recalled on the 12 years, I'd got another three years consecutive on top of that 12 for assault. I got required to do my licence and plus the new sentence. And it was about a year before I actually got released when I started going to education, started learning myself how to read and write. And then um, a course come in called the Alpha Course, which was a course held by Christians down the chapel by the vicar. Um, you'd get let out of your cell and individual people would come in from outside, say like 10 people. We'd all sit around in a group in a circle and we'd all talk about godly things and our life and what we've done. And just to try and like get an insight into each other's lives and behaviours to try and, to try and get to the bottom of it, to be honest with you. And it wasn't till I was 42 that I realised that if I'd carry on committing crime, this was going to be the rest of my life in jail. And you could read and write by then. Yeah, as I said, I'd done the I'd done the course at education um, for a year. Um, I ended up taking sitting guilds in adult literacy and learning, and, and the rest of it. But I, it was age. What really stopped me from doing it? It was it was really weird. To be honest, I had a bit of a flashback one night. <clears throat> this is what happened. I was I was coming back from the uh, Bible studies one night on association on the wing, and. You've got a corridor called the M1 in Wayland, where I was at the time. 
Well, the screws weight down the one end and the screws at the other end. So basically, you can walk along the M1 to the corridor, back to your wing on your own, but you've got screws both ends watching you, plus CCTV and all the rest of it. And it was one night, about 7.30, I'd just come out, I'd just done a Bible study, and I was walking along the landing, and I stopped, I just stopped dead in the middle of the landing. I don't know what made me do it, I looked up, I couldn't see above out of the prison, because obviously there was a ceiling above me, but I looked up, and something, it was like I had a little sign, something said to me, what are you doing with your life, what are you doing? It's time to stop. I can't explain who it was, what it was, or where it come from. I just heard something in my head. It was like a light switch just flicked. And someone just said to me, enough is enough. If you carry on, you're never going to see daylight again. You're going to spend the rest of your life in jail. And it wasn't until I was 42 I finally realised, look, that was the case. And it was very interesting. The first thing, I mean, you very kindly picked me up from the station, which is great of you. But the first thing you said to me after a low, obviously, and all that, was you said, look, the one thing I don't want to do is glamorise crime. Right. And do you know what I really respect is the fact that you could, but you haven't. And why is that? Um, because I don't want the younger generation to stand in my footsteps or walk in my path. If I can help one person out of 100 not to not to commit crime and go back to prison, then th- that's my goal and, and I've achieved. That's what I aim to do. Just to teach a younger generation that going to prison is not glamorous. It's not what it's cut out to be. You're going to have a life of hell. And it's it's the ones what you leave outside what are really feeling it, the loved ones what you leave behind, what miss you. I can't blame anyone for the way I, why I was acting. And I can't blame no one for what I was doing. And also I can't blame people for my, my mistakes. I'm an adult. And I wear my heart on my sleeve and I, and I can only blame myself. But I was the only son in my in my family. I've got two older sisters and I was the only son. I was the apple of my mum's eye um, being the only son. She used to go out the extra mile to help me. She obviously see that I had problems where I was getting arrested. But she'd never, ever give up on me. And I had so much love and attention from my mum. It's just unbelievable. And from a very, very, very early age, my mum was ill. I remember when I was like eight or nine, uh, my mum got breast cancer. She went into a hospital. Um, She had her breast removed into the Royal Royal Marsden and she got let home after after removal and radiation and chemotherapy. Um, At the same time, she had... Crohn's disease and thrombosis of the lung. She was only five foot one and she weighed five stone eight. So even talking about my mum gets me upset, to be honest. It was that close relationship with me and my mum. I don't know if I've told you, but in the early 90s, my mum and dad moved away from London, um, from Streatham, where I was brought up on the estate, to to obviously better themselves and probably give me an opportunity to get away from the life of crime and the life that I was leading. I was only 15 at the time. But, um, yeah, so basically, um, my mum moved to um, West Sussex and my dad, my stepdad, and I moved with them when I was 15 years of age. I couldn't settle um, in the new house in Littlehampton because 
I had too many mates in London and I was missing the hype, I was missing the money, I was missing the whole lifestyle of what, what I was, what led me up to that. I stayed, I've stayed um, in the bed and breakfast. My mum set up a de- bed and breakfast on the seafront in Littlehampton with my dad and it was a successful business. I stayed stayed there for about three months and I missed London, missed my mates, missed everything and I moved back to London and moved back into one of my sister's houses. Um, I've got two sisters and the door was always open for me. I could go knock on the door four o'clock in the morning, whatever condition I was in, I was always welcome in my family's house and my two sister's houses. My stepdad, my stepdad was an alcoholic, he was a drinker, he was Irish from Northern Ireland he got with my mum just after my dad split up through my uncles. They was working with him on the roads. He was working for a firm called Murphy's. And basically my mum got with my stepdad. And then they uh, bought a house in Littlehampton. This is what leading up to it. So um, I moved back to London, moved back to my sister's house and started going back to my old lifestyle, what I was doing, uh, committing crime. But uh, I was still committing crime. I wasn't getting caught. The police wasn't coming nowhere near me. So I didn't have no reason to stop. A few weeks later, uh, we got pulled back to my mum and dad's house by my family and said, you better go back and stay with your mum. Your mum's in a bad way. She uh, has contracted secondary cancer and she's terminally ill. I was 15. So I decided to uh, up camp and move back into my mum's house with my two sisters at that time. They both come with me and we stayed with my mum in her house for 10 days um, while she was had, had secondary cancer and she was on her last legs of life. Two days before my mum actually passed away, she went into a, a little private hospital, which is local, into a hospice. And all my family was there at the time. And... Sorry. Sorry, take your time. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good. And basically, uh, my mum passed passed away. Uh, this took a really, really dramatic effect on me. You know, um, although I'd been to prison prior, prior to this, I wasn't geared up and I wasn't ready to lose my mum. She was the closest thing I ever had. She's the closest thing I ever, ever will have. And... It still messes me up today. I'm still really messed up. As you can see, I'm emotional. I'm crying yeah. over the effect of my mum. Um, f- when my mum passed away, my life just spiralled completely out of control. As I say, I moved back to London and I started hanging around with a gang, which was from my local area. They was a few years older than me and they was committing bigger crimes. They was getting lots of money taking drugs, having nice cars, booking up. Uh, I was only 16 at this time, I think 15, 16, booking up in hotels and living the fast line. I I just couldn't see what I was, no way out of it at all. Two of my co-defendants was both armed. They both had 38 guns, revolvers. I got a 38 revolver gun and the three of us all moved into a flat which was one of my friend's flats in Tooting and the party started we just partied took drugs and I'd done anything I could to take the pain of losing my mum 
So all the time I was committing crime, spending money, going into nightclubs, living the high life, I wasn't thinking about my mum. I wasn't upset of my mum. So this was the way of me dealing, this was my coping mechanism by me committing crime and just not having a care in the world. The way I looked at it was I've lost my mum. I've lost everything around me. I've got absolutely nothing to lose. My friends was earning big money. As I say, they was driving flash cars. You know, they was committing armed robberies at that time. They was doing like little uh, estate agencies and bookies, little post offices, little banks. I quickly, quickly rose up the ranks, got myself a gun. And that was, that was what I was, that's what happened. Every other day, we was going out, committing different robberies with with the with my with my boys and the police weren't coming nowhere near us. This went on for probably about eighteen months, two years. The quick I was getting the money, quick I was spending it. The robberies were, were going up. At this time I'd probably done about thirty separate armed robberies. I was doing banks, building societies, post offices. At this stage I was funding a drug habit which was cocaine at that time. And I was spending around a thousand pound a day on cocaine. So there was no point of me and my firm going out doing anything petty because that wasn't what we was after. We was after big money so that we could part yard and not give a fuck. Yeah, that makes sense. Can I ask you how big a decision is it to carry a gun? To carry a gun, You've got prepared to do the bird for the gun. So, for instance, if you carry a truncheon and you get pulled up by the police and get arrested, you might get, I don't know, nine months, 12 months in prison. You might get a, you might get a fine. You might not even go to prison. But with a gun, you always know if you get caught with a gun, you're going to get five years. It starts at five years. And to me, at that time, I couldn't see me ever getting caught for the robberies what I was doing. Why was that? Was it because you were on a roll? The way I looked at it was we was too fast, we was too quick, and we was too clever for the police. Okay. We Every robbery we did, we didn't spend more than three minutes inside the building. We had a getaway car outside, and a few miles away from that, we had another getaway car. We had a change of clothes, and, and it, was easy, it was as easy as that. It was like three minutes flat and you was maybe walking out of the place with 10 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand. You might only get five grand. But the places in the buildings, what we was doing, we, we knew we was going to get big money because those post offices and banks and building societies okay. at that time. This is kind of personal, but could, could you remember seeing the fear in the eyes of the people who worked like in a post office or a bank? It's funny you should say that because at that time I obviously didn't. I couldn't see the effect or I couldn't see the damage or I couldn't see what he was doing to the people what was witnessing my behaviour. No, I, I didn't see this. I didn't really actually realise the impact or what I'd done to people until I read my statements. And there was 75 people in the post office Monday morning, first thing, quarter past nine, it was absolutely packed round with people. When two of us walked inside, there were pump-action shotguns and I laid everyone on the floor, put a gun on the screen and, and asked the postmaster to hand out the money, which they did. Everyone laid on the floor and a lady with a buggy did 
did walk up to me while I had the gun on the screen and started screaming, please, please, my baby, my baby, please don't kill my baby. I turned around and said to her, walk out, you can go, and I let her go. And it wasn't until I read these statements that I found out that this person with the baby actually knew me in person. And whilst I was doing a robbery, she looked at me in the eye and she knew it was me. But she didn't say anything? She didn't say nothing, but she really stuck in her statement. She didn't identify me, but she, 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 obviously she said she was worried out of her life, along with all the other statements, you know, yeah. petrified for her life. They, they were scared of dying. They were scared of their baby. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you think that she didn't identify you uh, because she respected the fact that you let her go? Yeah, yeah, because... You can actually look in someone's eyes, really, and t- I can, and I can look in someone's eyes, and I can tell straight away what the what the player what the play is. And I looked at her in the eye, and I actually tried to can try to like say to her, you know, you can go. You're not going to get hurt. Your baby's not going to get get hurt. But I do understand. I put the fear of God in many of my yeah. victims. Well, yeah, you get it now. I guess at the time, if you yeah. Active, yeah, no, it's sort of it, it kind of that very much makes sense to me. By the time I actually got arrested for the very stupid armed robbery, what he got arrested for, my co-defendant, which I didn't know at the time, had gone Queen's evidence against me and my other two co-defendants. And the flying squad, Barnes flying squad and Tower Bridge flying squad had my and my co-defendants MO from different offences what we was committing. So basically, when we was going out looking for bits of work to rob, because most of the time we, we, we it wasn't a spur of a moment thing, we did go and have a look at the play. Along the way, we did do a, a few security vans. Um, we, we used to watch them. We used to watch them come getting out of the van and security guard. We used to watch them take the empty box into the supermarket or wherever they was going. And then on the way out, we knew that was the, that was the box what was full up. So that's, that's when we'd start. We'd take the box. Of the of, on the security box. Yeah, and what was the job you were caught for then? The stupid one. The stupid one was um, whilst whilst I was committing these robberies with my gang and my firm and getting away with it. Obviously, girls like armed robbers. They like criminals. So girls come and go. But this particular girl, me and my my boys used to go around to her house and we used to have a sniff of coke with her and we used to party with her and. And, you know, it was that type of lifestyle, fast money, and it was fast gone. So one day we turned up around there. Prior to this, my co-defendant had had an accident and broken his leg and he was in hospital and he was our driver. So basically our driver was missing. Now, this was just a coincidence because I didn't know this happened until later on in the story. One day we went round to this female girl's house. We was all partying in there and I see a guy about my age laying on the settee in the front room. And straight away, I asked the girl, I said, who's this? Because I didn't know him, I didn't recognise him. And my, my boys who was with me didn't recognise him. And she went on to tell me the story, who he was, why he was there, and what he was doing. And this was the story. He was from Battersea, he broke into someone's house, and basically it's a repercussion. They've come back and broken into his house. Um, they tied him up, his baby, his wife up, and they put his baby 
which was only nine months at the time. They put his baby inside the washing machine. This guy, what we met, jumped out of the, the second story uh, flats out of the window to escape from this. And he ended up around this girl's house. This is the story, what this girl told me and what this boy told me, why he was in our friend's house. Straight away, automatically, I felt sorry for him. And he said, I'm skint. He said, I'm game. He said, I'll, I'll do anything. He said, I just want some money. He said, I need to get out of the country. I need some money. And so I said to him, we don't normally take anyone on bits of graft or work with us across the pavement. We don't know you. But because of, I believe your story, I will put you on the wheel of, of a car because of one of our mates is in hospital. So, and we've got a, a job coming up to do and we were at a driver. So basically he was on the wheel. We still didn't know what was going on at this time, really, apart from what the story, what he told us. This morning, me and my other two two uh, mates in my firm picked this this guy up to do to do the robbery around this female girl's house, and we put him behind a wheel. So we turned up um, in a post office in Wallerton, which is in Surrey. It was a spur of a moment thing. We didn't really have much to do. And we just wanted fast cash. So it wasn't planned, which is very unusual for us, really, because we didn't really act like that or roll like that. We normally went on things what we'd planned, not a ready eye thing. This was a type of a ready eye. Well, it was to be later on. So basically, the driver was in the car. Me and my two friends got out of the, of the, of the car, back of the car. We had our ovals on. We pulled our balaclava down. I had the semi-automatic pump action shotgun my other two mates both had 38 revolvers. We hit the uh, the post office, put the gun on the screen. There's an Indian guy behind the, behind the counter. I sent me sent demands over to him and the money over. He screamed. He hit the panic button. So I let a shot off in the roof just to let him know that we weren't messing about and we come here for the money. So I let a shot off in the roof. I blew the roof out. But the alarm bells were ringing at this time and he was behind the screen and he vanished out a little back room and he'd gone, he'd disappeared. So we couldn't get through the door because all the screens was up, the alarms were going and we knew police was on the way because we heard the sirens going. So basically within, it felt like hours, but within two minutes we'd run out. This was the first job we'd ever done where we'd run out of somewhere and we hadn't had no money. So we'd run out, got into the car, and we drove off. I saw the police sirens in, in, in the distance coming, but we was making ahead of them. About half a mile away from the robbery, me and my other two mates decided to get changed of, out of the ovals what we had on. We got changed and went into our normal clothes, which was a tracksuit and trainers. And I, I, I told the driver to drive off and leave us there so we could walk across walk down the road as if nothing had happened and hopefully the police would drive straight past us because we was out of the clothing, we'd split up and at this time there was just me and my other co-defendant walking across the bridge. Everything what we took on the job was left in the car and I, I told the driver to take the car to a breakage yard in Croydon because prior to this I knew someone on the crane what was, what was told by myself and given a drink that if, I, if any car from me had ever got taken through them gates, it must be crushed immediately. 
As we was walking over the bridge, as far as we was concerned, the driver had got away, he was gone. So we was happy that. They haven't got the gun, they haven't got the ovals, they've got no clothes, they've got no DNA, they've got no forensics, it was all in the car. We was walking across the bridge at Hackbridge in Wallerton, and police come from both sides, SO19 and Trojan units, put red dots all around me and my friend and laid us on the floor and said, get on the floor. I shouted out, we ain't done nothing. But they didn't listen, they, laid, they put us on the floor. They wrapped us up, it felt like a lifetime, but they wrapped us up and took us to Wellington Police Station. Got taken to the police station and as far as I was concerned, they didn't have no evidence, they didn't have no forensics, no DNA, and it, we were getting we'd, we'd get not guilty on it because they couldn't pick us out on ID parade. We had balaclavas on. The postmaster couldn't say if we were black, white, pink or yellow. They didn't have a clue. We was all wrapped up. We got taken to the police station and questioned about this robbery, which straight away started ringing alarm bells. And I tried to call their bluff and said, what are you talking about? I've just picked my friend up from his house. We've not committed no crimes at all. We're just walking across the bridge to go home. They put us into a few hours later. They rushed us to Highdown Prison and put us in prison. They charged us with the arm, the one armed robbery at this post office, which we thought we was going to get not guilty for. Right. A few days had gone past. The officers come into the wing, come into me and my other two co-defendants and put us under Category A prisoners, which meant we couldn't have no visitors. We couldn't send letters out without getting vetted. All our phone calls were getting monitored. We were getting watched by the officers. We were basically Category A prisoners. We carried on for, we carried on as Category A prisoners. Me and my other two co-defendants at this time carried on. About a week went past, not even a week, four days went past. I had a visit from the Flying Squad, from Barnes and Towerbridge Flying Squad, along with my other two co-defendants. When I went on to the visit, I went on there as if, as, and I had it in my head, Look, they had no evidence, they had nothing on me, and we were going to beat this case, we would get out. Just don't crack, don't crumble, there's no glasses on my firm. Everyone went, no comment, and we'd be on remand probably for about a year until it went to trial, and we'd get out, and that'd be the end of it. Well, to my surprise, the policeman started asking me about other robberies. He started naming other robberies, what I had done with my other two co-defendants. On the day that that was done, right down to the descriptions of the colour of the ovals we had on. The police had every single bit of intelligence on us and I still didn't have a clue how. A week went past, the police come back up again and they charged me with seven armed robberies and my other two co-defendants. The driver, we still didn't know what was going on until we got our debts, our statements from the solicitor. When I read my statements, I couldn't believe it, and the depths. The boy, the bloke what we took on and took under our wing as a driver was a paid informer working for the flying squad. He'd committed a few offences and the flying squad had said to him, we know a firm of armed robberies in South London. We're going to put you into this house with a female where I know that these robbers go to and this is what you've got to act. So, as far as we were concerned, he was one of us. But when I've got my statements, I read that he was, work, he was a paid informer. He was working for the flying squad for two years. He was a grass. 
And in the statements, he was going under duress, which I couldn't believe because every single robbery we took him on, we carved the money up equally and we was all partying together for months and months and months. We lived together, we slept together, we breathed together, we done everything together. Unbeknown to us, all the time, he was a paid informer by the flying squad and he was put on our case to specifically take us down. Now, obviously, that must have hurt you at the time. I, I could, you know, that must have hurt you because obviously it's a friend who's betraying you. And I don't want to bring back the hurt. But when we fast forward to the person you are now, how do you feel about that guy as we're sat here now? Not at the time, but now. Can it? Can he be forgiven is the right word? Um, no, no. I can't. I will never forgive him. If he would have took it on the chin and got the sentence like we got, then I would, I would have thought nothing else of it. But the simple fact that he actually said that we kidnapped him, oh we put him under duress, we put a gun up to his head, yeah. we made him smoke crack cocaine, and he was too scared to leave our gang because we knew where his parents lived and we would kill him. That is what done me more than anything, anything in the world, where he'd lied and said that we kidnapped him and he was too scared to leave us. Scary, but he would, um, but he would say that. Well, as I said, I haven't, I haven't forgiven him, but I'm not the type of guy nowadays. If when I see him to attack him, more than anything now, I actually feel sorry for him more than anything, because what happened was was when we got the sentence after everything was all said and done. On the day of my sentence, when we got 12 years, the judge was doing a summing up and he was reading out that we was a menace to society, we were a danger to the public, the public deserved a, a long, long break from the likes of people like us. As he was just about, as he was just about to pass sentence, something come over me and I wanted to escape. And I jumped over the dock as he was passing sentence, rugby, tap, rugby tackled through all the... The jailers, the screws, the officers, what was surrounding the court and the courtrooms, because there was, a, we had, it was a heavy, heavy case under Category A conditions, at, in the London Crown Court. As I say, I jumped the dock. I didn't know what I was doing. It was a spur of the moment thing. I jumped the dock. I rugby tackled a few, a few jailers. I was running down a load of corridors, and then before I know it, I was out the front, on the main street, running up the high street with the screws chasing me. I actually got out of the courtroom and got away. I got caught about a mile up the road. I was, the jailers were still about 100 yards behind me, but I was fit. I was, I was training. I was ready for it. I was in the gym when I was in Belmarsh in prison. I was training for it, so I was very fit. I was fast. I got away from them. I was running across the roundabout and... I looked around, well, I didn't even look around me. I just got took out by a black taxi. It comes straight into me and took me over and, and just took my kneecaps out. I'll, I'll show you the scars, what it done to me. Blimey, yeah, that's... That must have really hurt. Yeah, ah. It's just scars here. Yeah. So what happened was there is... The jailers from the court flagged down a black taxi because I was getting ahead of them. 
they got into the back of the taxi. They see me running across the roundabout and they actually asked the taxi driver to hit me and knock me over to catch me. And that's exactly what they've done. They hit me and caught me. And that's how I got arrested. And because I got arrested for the escape, they couldn't deal with the escape in the London Crown Court with the, the seven armed robberies, what I was charged with. So they sent me up to the Old Bailey in Court 13 for sentencing. And that's when I got the 12 years. The tattoo? The tattoo. You got a tattoo on your face, right? How do people react to that? Uh, you, do, you, you do get stereotyped down to your tattoo. And if you can't deal with it properly, it can lead to paranoia. It can lead to Ill, mental illnesses. It can lead to all sorts of things. So it's like um, you get stereotyped with tattoos, whether it be on your face or whether, whether it be on your body. But um, being on your face, like I've got a tattoo on my face, um, I've learned I've learned to uh, to to understand that when someone sees you once, unlike a normal person without tattoos, you're never going to be forgotten. Right. Right. That was a way for me, one of the ways for me to stop committing crime. I used it as a mechanism to have a tattoo on my face also. I had it because I, I was going to go on an idea parade night to change my appearance. I did have that. I had the tattoo down to that. I committed a robbery. I just got out on a big sentence. I don't know what made me do it, but I didn't have no money. I'd just done years and years. I didn't have no support. They released me from Parker Segregation Unit. I didn't have no resettlement. I didn't have no home leave. I didn't have no town visits. I had absolutely nothing. They just come in my cell one day after eight years, nine months, and said, right, you're going out. And I was in a segregation unit in the block. So I come out like a wild animal, to be honest with you. Um, I was very annoyed with the system for not helping me, not trying to st- like steer me up the right right roads, not giving me no resettlement. I come out, with, I come out, I come out of jail on that big sentence, a very very angry man, and I felt like the world owed me something because they didn't give me nothing, okay. no help and whatsoever. Then you, then you got the so, so basically, after a few weeks of being released from that big sentence. I went back to my old ways. I met one of my old old friends. Can't say her name, but I went one of my old friends. He had another bit of work. Well, what I mean is another robbery coming up. It was 30 grand plus. It was a big job. I was skint. I was just out of jail. I didn't have no direction. You know, I didn't have no money around me whatsoever. And I accepted the offer and I went on and I'd done this robbery after I got out on the big sentence. Got away with the robbery. Can't say where it was or what it was, but we got away with the robbery and I fled from the area for a few days just to let the heat go down. But before I fled, this robbery was done on a few motorcycles because I'm a really good motorbike rider. And I forgot to tell you, but when I was younger, a few of the older boys used to use me as a getaway driver when they was doing security vans. I've always rode bikes and cars. I'm what you call a petrol head. I'm a really good driver and a good rider, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, I got offered this uh, this other bit of work when I come out on a big sentence. Got away with it. Went away for a few days. Got a phone call from one of my contacts in London and said that the vehicle, what I'd done a robbery on, has been found and been taken by the police. I was worried about DNA. I was worried about forensics. I was worried about fingerprints. I was worried about 
getting getting a life sentence and never coming out of jail again. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a clue what to do. And my friend suggested to me that I should change my appearance, which was what I'd done. I went straight into a tattoo shop. I went up to the guy behind the jump. He must have thought I was a madman. But I said to him, look, I need my appearance changing. Can Can you put a tattoo on the side of my face? A few days later, I went home. Early hours in the morning, armed police threw me door, arrested me for this arm robbery, which I supposedly had done. I got put into Belmarsh Prison again. I got taken on a few ID parades, but because of the change of appearance and because of the tattoo on my face, they couldn't find any other people with tattoos on their face the same as me. So they couldn't put me on an ID parade, which meant I couldn't get picked out for the robbery because they couldn't find another person with a tattoo on their face. So in a way, it stopped me from getting a life sentence. Now, I've stopped committing crime. I haven't committed crime for 10 years, over 10 years now. I'm clean, I'm doing PM mentor, I'm a counsellor, drugs counsellor. It's only now, really, I would like to get the tattoo removed off my face. But another side of me says, that's part of your history and tomorrow is a mystery. There's no point of going over spilt milk. What's done is done and you are what you are. No matter what tattoos you've got, you are what you are. You ain't going to change what you are. So just live your life as normal because I did get to a stage where it really fucked me up. I was paranoid. I wouldn't go out of my house. Every time I was walking, going in the pubs with mates or even my missus going out for having something to eat, going out for meals, I, I had people staring over at me, looking at me because of my appearance, because of my tattoo on my face, thinking I'm gang related straight away, getting a stereotype. So I had a couple of years of like really paranoia going inwards. And that's when I decided to go on that Jeremy Cole show to have, to help have the removal of the tattoo on my face. But yet again, he defied me, he lied to me, he spun it round, he said to me, he would help with the funding of the tattoo on my face if I go onto his show. When I went onto his show with my missus, he just portrayed me as a mad arm robber and a drug-filled hooligan, basically. But nowadays, um, I've just got my head around the fact that uh, the tattoo's going to be there forever. And I've used it for my advantage, to be honest with you, because every new person what I meet, they're never going to forget me because of my tattoo on my face. Yeah, so you just own it now. Yeah, so now I own it. So I've got my head around it now. Perfect. As always, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I don't always ask, but I'm going to ask now. Please do leave a review on iTunes. It means a lot. It just means that the podcast gets listened to by more people. Thank you to all those people who do share it on social media, people who've very kindly messaged me to wish me well and say they've enjoyed the podcast I don't take any of it for granted. Honestly, I don't. Thank you. I'm enjoying this journey. I need it to continue. I want it to continue. Huge thanks to Joey, of course, and his partner, Sam, for making me so welcome in their house. It was a joy to meet you both. And of course, your two lovely dogs. I know Joey's working on a second book now as well. So good luck with that. There will be more things happening with the podcast. I have more interviews coming up i will be doing a second series with dave courtney and brendan as well so thank you very much i'll speak to you again bye for now